and welcome to Moments of Change. My name is Melanie Raymond and I'm a social designer based in Sydney, Australia and currently a director at the Australian Centre for Social Innovation. Moments of Change is a podcast dedicated to exploring the moments that we learn from as we seek to design and cultivate positive social change. In this episode, I speak with Joanna Shuker, incoming Director of Design and Innovation at RSA based in London. Joanna is a design practitioner, researcher, educator and thought leader with experience across the UK and Lebanon, previously working as Health Director at FutureGov and spending 10 years leading Us Creates, a service design agency for health and wellbeing, alongside co-founders Zoe Stanton and Mary Cook. She also currently holds a number of roles with the universities in the UK. In this episode, Joanna shares her views and experience on place-based design, challenging the status quo, designing for systemic change, and being community-led. She shares her stories from work in seeking to address health inequalities in the London borough of Tower Hamlets, catalyzed by, at the time, the unique outcomes-based commissioning approach. I hope you enjoy this episode of Moments of Change. Joanna Shukir, welcome to Moments of Change. Thank you for having me, Melanie. Can you please describe your upcoming role um, and how you're seeking to create positive social change? So um, so I'm a social design practitioner, lecturer and thought leader, and I'm now in transition um, on maternity leave with twins, which is proving challenging in its own way through <laughs> <Wow>. lockdown. <laughs> you are my hero. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's getting easier, but it's, well, I, I, I still wouldn't call it easy. Um, but uh, for the last 10 years, I was leading Us Creates, uh, which is a London-based service design agency focusing on health and well-being, um, alongside co-founders Zoe Stanton and Mary Cook. And in 2018, um, Us Creates was acquired by FutureGov, and I moved on to direct the health portfolio there for a year before going on maternity leave. Um, and at the end of August, um, I am very excited to be joining uh, the RSA as their Director of Design and Innovation. Uh, so in my new role, I'm looking forward to championing how design can be used as a powerful enabler um, to support the RSA uh, to deliver on its new vision, which is um, a really exciting vision, a world where everyone is able to participate um, in creating a better future. Brilliant. I think, you know, it sounds like... Uh... Now more than ever, we need we need to be thinking even further and more deeply about this. Um, tell me, how has your purpose uh, evolved over your career? So um, it's really interesting because I've always been passionate about making social change through my work. Um, but I suppose what's changed is how I believe I can make that change happen. So it's the how rather than what I wanted to achieve. Um, so I think having grown up in the middle of a civil war, travelled around the world, um, having had a father who is a diplomat, um, all of these things sort of tune me into my social and political responsibility at a personal level. But early on, I thought I needed to work in politics or diplomacy to be able to make change. Um, I definitely didn't think I could do that through design. Um, But back then, um, I knew there were obstacles for women to really achieve their full potential in these sectors. Um, And graphic design at the time, that was the 90s, was cool and trendy. Um, I was told... (laughs) I was told I was talented. Um, I actually come from three generations of designers in the family, which is quite unusual. Um, So I used design, I suppose, as my creative outlet um, to the social issues I was passionate about. So first of all, that started out as uh, being sort of a design activist. Um, So getting involved Mm. in like Greenpeace um, um, campaigns, um, 
um, social rallies against injustice. Um, and I suppose um, gradually, so for example, as I was doing my PhD research, I thought, well, maybe I can make change happen through um, being a theorist. So um, using research, like design research and practice as a way to generate new theories, methodologies, guidance um, for other designers um, to be able to apply some of these techniques to make change happen. Um, and then at the same time, I was working at Uscreate and then FutureGov, and I thought that maybe making change happen um, needed to be um, about creating or designing interventions um, that address specific problems. So, for example, um, smoking, stop smoking interventions or interventions that uh, reduce childhood obesity or increase early cancer screening or reduce pressure on urgent care services. Um, but as I sort of experienced um, through my career, um, lots of different types of challenges and realized that there's lots of different movers and shakers in the system um, I'm becoming to recognize the power of social movements and that's what I'm really uh, wanting to explore in my new role at the RSA so how do you create social movements that can combine all of these different ways of making change happen um, at the same time so we are all moving in the same direction to really shift the system you mentioned being an activist um, mm. and indeed your personal background and experience in civil war. What does being an activist mean to you today in terms of what have you brought forward, the learnings that you still carry with you each day in, in thinking about how you'll build social movements? Yeah. So I think activism is still very relevant in my career today. I feel like activism is sort of part of my life mission all the things I care about, I, I'm still an activist um, for. Um, so things like the Black Lives Movement now, Extinction Rebellion. Um, I mean, if, if you look at it, um, there's a significant need for um, these movements to really shake the system, um, for people's voice to be heard, um, for um, needs to be expressed. Um, to really challenge the status quo and um, demonstrate that there's a different way of thinking and doing for the system. So um, grassroots movements are absolutely necessary, as well as sort of top-down organising policy making. And it's about where these sort of worlds collide, um, where uh, really the essence of systemic change starts to happen. Um, so they have a significant role to play. And through sort of all of my work, I never discount activism as an approach um, mm. to making some of that change. I love that you talk about both the sort of the bottom up the and the top down and, and finding that space. I think that is really where the, the magic happens mm. um, and uh, I think it's a real art in being able to recognise both of those different types of ways of approaching social change and, and essentially orchestrating that or at least building upon the strengths of, of what those types of uh, different perspectives would bring. You know, before the show we talked about uh, your experiences in place-based design and, and working with communities to shape change what's the moment of change that you you've brought today to the show to talk about 
Yeah, so I guess uh, sort of a perfect example of these worlds colliding is um, is a program called Communities Driving Change. Um, so this is a program I um, I was directing um, from a design perspective, um, uh, or I started directing in 2017, and it's still ongoing. Um, so it was commissioned by a local authority in Tower Hamlets in London uh, to reduce health inequalities. Um, so to give you a sense of Tower Hamlets as a place, um, it's the 10th most deprived uh, borough nationally. Um, mm-hmm. It has the fastest growing population in London, um, 50% non-white population. And we know, we understand the relationship between um, high populations um, of Baini groups and health inequalities. And shockingly, there's a six to eight year variation in life expectancy between its poorest uh, neighbourhoods and other affluent neighbourhoods across the country. Um, and it's it's really sad because um, although healthcare is free for all at the point of use or at the point of access, um, we can clearly see um, evidence of health inequalities happening um, Mm. in the health outcomes and the data that that reveal some of the health outcomes in that place. So we took a place-based approach. um, So thinking about a place so it really so when we talk about place, that's sort of a 500 meter radius, which is usually when people sort of move around a place. That's yeah. sort of typically without using public transport, that tends to be the space um, or the distance that they cross. Mm-hmm. Um, so about 1,500 people or maybe 600 households if you're looking at an urban place. So we thought about that place as one population, one neighborhood one health and care system, one budget. So bring all of these things together to be able to deliver on one vision. And the reason that particular program was different um, was, um, or I suppose there's a number of reasons why it was different and unprecedented in terms of how it was commissioned. First of all, it was outcomes-based commissioning. So the Health and Wellbeing Board and the Clinical Commissioning Group and public health team and the local authority didn't sort of look at the health data and then think, oh, we need to commission a weight management service, a sexual screening service, maternity services. Um, They thought, well, we need to deliver on a vision where we can address um, a lot of the health inequalities. So they co-produced a vision with local residents around communities feeling in control, supporting each other, taking joint action on the issues that they really cared about. And this program was very much about delivering that vision so rather than a service. Um, it was hyper-local, as I mentioned, uh, so dividing Tower Hamlets into four wards and 12 hyper-local neighbourhoods. Some of the neighbourhoods were just one estate, like that is how, mm. how small the work was and focused. Um, it's a long-term programme that's really hard to see in health commissioning, uh, so a five-year programme recognising that systemic change takes time. It's not a 12-week intervention. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and finally, it's about uh, bring together um, person-centered design, but also overlaying that with asset-based community development or ABCD, which is um, an approach that's advocated for by Cormac Russell, if you're familiar with him. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and he talks about um, the importance of starting with what is strong in a community rather than what is wrong. And actually the problem with services and the design of services is that often these disable people from being able to support themselves. So there's quite a paradox between, um, in a way, design and um, and asset-based community development, um, but there's also strengths in, in bringing these two approaches together. 
Joanna, you mentioned um, outcomes-based commissioning and, of course, going into these communities. And, and we'll, we'll touch on, you know, some of the, the deeper understanding of the story of change in a moment. But I'm just interested in um, that alone, the trust alone, you know, sort of bestowed upon you by firstly uh, the commissioning group mm-hmm. in and around the trust uh, around outcomes um, and thinking about what that means for them as an organisation and, and, and the risk perhaps that's attached to that. And indeed, then also yourselves going into communities where I assume uh, they've probably been over-researched and over-consulted quite a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm interested in the, the trust on both sides and, and and how you were able to deepen that uh, and 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 start that off with them. Yeah, absolutely. So when I remember when we first saw the tender come out, um, so that was um, with me working at Creates, um, we thought that was such a bold brief and we'd never seen anything like it. And through speaking to some of the commissioners um, at, um, at Tower Hamlets, um, it became apparent that this was one of the NHS exemplars. So NHS England had um, put some money or some funding forward for local authorities to try different approaches to address health inequalities. So in a way this was sort of that was the safety net that this was an opportunity to test something new there was no guarantee that this will work um but they treated evaluation um with a lot of care so um so we had university of um east london as an evaluation partner from the outset on this um so i suppose um that sort of setting where this is an experimental place to try something new where nothing has worked before or very few programs have really had the sustainability and longevity to achieve the sort of systemic change um, in the longer term was was really supportive um, mm-hmm. and there was also a lot of passion from that leadership team within um, the within the local authority and across the health and well-being board they really understood a lot of the theories um, so Cormac Russell's approach um, person-centered design, um, Michael Marmot's review, so um, taking a social determinants approach or a holistic Mm. approach to to addressing health inequalities. So they're really passionate about some of these um, theories and approaches and really keen to pioneer them in that space. So that really helped. And then the second part of your question around community consultation (laughs) and consultation (laughs) fatigue. So that was really difficult, actually. we were misunderstood um, because often with um, a lot of the commissioning that happens, you sort of um, buy an off-the-shelf service and then consultation means, or, or you might design a service like just behind a desk and then put it in front of um, the community to feed back on, to talk about what they like about it and what they dislike. Um, mm-hmm. And we were coming with nothing we weren't really putting anything on the table. We were just asking people what their dreams were for their place now and in the future for their children and grandchildren. And so obviously there was a lot of scepticism around um, how it was possible for a local authority to really not come with an agenda. So the politics behind the programme were questioned. Um, But I guess we built trust gradually. We expected some of these reactions and we didn't see them as failure. We just saw them as, um, I suppose, work that needs to be done. more work that needs to be done. Um, We made sure we spoke to everyone who was um, 
engaged locally, who was already doing good work and who had a strong voice. Um, that's particularly in the first phase of work where we were scoping the neighborhoods we really wanted to focus on, where we could deliver the biggest difference or make the biggest change. Um, and then in the second phase, uh, once we've identified these 12 hyperlocal neighborhoods, we knocked on every single door. So that was our approach to building trust. Um, mm. So knocking on every single door, introducing ourselves, making sure that the same people on the field were consistent, that faces were familiar, that we had a base where everyone could find us and contact us. Um, we worked with local delivery partners and organizations that uh, the communities were familiar with, who really understood that these neighborhoods and who knew people in these neighborhoods. And we um, we delivered quick results. And I think that is, that's really important to demonstrate that um, change can happen very early on. So although we had some very sort of long-term fairly long-term action plans we also had the quick wins and we made sure that yes. you know the community um the wall down this dodgy alley um was painted with murals that would make it a bit more cheerful and feel that would make it feel a bit safer for families with young children to, to go out and hang out and things like that um were absolutely mm. important i know we were talking prior to the show about that sort of need to have those portfolio of interventions across those different time horizons because, uh, you know, some of those quick wins were so instrumental in building that trust. What are some of the sort of more medium and long-term uh, things that you were uh, trying to change and how did that, how did that evolve over time? Yeah. So um, I'll give you an example of um, a medium term intervention that turned into more of a longer term intervention. Um, so um, in one of the neighborhoods, um, we spoke to a lot of um, young girls, um, teenage girls, about how they felt in that place. And there was the sense of, um, I suppose, lack of safety and lack of confidence to go out on their own. Um, and to really do the things they wanted to do and and just be themselves in the neighborhood they've grown up in all of their life. And so one of the suggestions that these uh, girls came up with was to run self-defense classes. And when we were looking for a venue um, for these classes, um, we, um, we came to realize that um, the local youth centers were perceived as um, spaces for boys, not for girls. Mm. <laughs> and so they would rarely go there. They didn't think that the sessions that these or activities that these youth centers had on offer were relevant to the girls and they didn't feel safe going there. So we um, worked with a local provider, My Time Active, to run the Bengali, uh, sorry, th so the girls were predominantly from Bengali backgrounds. So to run the self-defense classes for Bengali teenage girls within the youth center, um, we picked a day in the week that was a girls only day. So it ran girls only sessions as a transition to creating a safe space where um, both girls and boys could meet but that was sort of almost like the, the stepping stone into that and so in, in the medium term um these sessions were run and then in the longer term um my time active started training these girls to become trainers and to run the self-defense classes um themselves 
And this whole process revealed that um, girls aren't really involved um, in the governance and decision-making process for how these youth centres are run, how their programmes are designed and curated. Um, So that led to some of them being represented on the steering group for the youth centre, but also joining um, the health and wellbeing board at the the whole health and care system. Um, So local authority and the clinical commissioning group as a way of influencing decisions that affect young people in that area. So you could sort of see how from a really small intervention that really uh, rippled across sort of systemic layers into young people and young girls having a voice in influencing local policy making. You mentioned governance there, and it's so wonderful to hear that you had young people, um, you know, involved in the decision making. Um, how did you bring about, you know, multiple people from across the community into that decision making to really guide authentic decision making for the program and for the change for community? Yeah. So um, there's a couple of things that we're really important throughout the process. Um, The first is um, understanding key players in a system and bring them on board throughout the process. And the second is thinking about the social determinants of change and who these key players would be across all the social determinants. So um, so in regards to the first point, um, so initially in the scoping phase, we made sure that we engaged with everyone from local residents to um, frontline staff, to local business owners, um, English teachers, like ESOL teachers, <laughs> yes. um, shopkeepers, faith leaders. Um, so everyone who had, I suppose, an asset, something to give and, a, and, mm. and something to say was important. Um, and then in the second stage or in the second phase, when we started to co-design um, local dreams uh, or co-produce local dreams and then co-design local action plans for these places um, we organized or we brought people together around uh, what we called local action groups mm. so these are individuals in that um, hyper local neighborhood who are committed to making uh, some of this change happen um, some of these dreams come true and they include um, everyone from local residents to some of the service providers in that area to um, uh, local policy mates or councillors so really including um, because you sort of need you need the residents who can really champion um, and be a strong voice um, in that community to make to activate that change but you also need people at different layers of the system who can sort of unblock some of the things that the community needs in order to make things happen so the way we did that was through bringing together these local action groups that um, that continue to um, support and in, in shaping and delivering some of this work but as you said the membership in these groups uh, changes and evolves over time mm. and I guess the limitation is that it's dependent on finding the right people at the right time it's selective to those with who have the motivation the energy the time to give um so that membership hasn't been consistent but that's the nature of place and mm. and transience and you know and i think it's at, at the end of the day it's about um continuing to push forward to make that neighborhood a better place to live and to work and to retire in to um to learn in and so on you mentioned uh, co-producing local dreams. I love that. I'm taking mm. that with me. 
me for the rest of the week. That's my phrase. Uh, <laughs> that's my phrase of the week. Yeah. Um, when you look back at this, um, and you know there obviously were multiple interventions and multiple interactions that you and others in your teams had had over time. But when you sit back and personally think about your experience in this, what's that one thing that really makes your heart sing about looking back at your involvement in that? So um, I think fundamentally what I keep coming back to is just how common. So, you know, communities in Tower Hamlets are so diverse. You have people from all corners of the world with all sorts of backgrounds. Um, Some people work there. Some people live there. Some people um, have always lived there. Some people, you know, come and go as tenants, short term tenants. But really, um, the thing that really struck me is that um, everyone really just wants to be happy in that place, to have um, a happy and positive life. And and particularly those with families, like their dreams with, with young children, their dreams were consistently just wanting their children to have a good life, to grow up in a positive mm-hmm. neighbourhood that enabled them to have the education that would then support them to have, you know, a successful um, career moving forward. Um, and it was just um, energizing to see just such a diverse community coming together around some of these shared dreams. Um, And it was, it helped us focus our energy and hopes on some of these aspirations rather than dwelling on, you know, all the negativity and all the pessimism that the the numbers, the data was showing us about about our hamlets as a place in terms of Mm. health deprivation. And looking back now, what do you think are some of those couple of learnings that you really take away with you about how you did what you did and and the experiences you had and you take into your practice today? Yeah, so I think we've touched on some of these, but I'll sum these up as four key learnings. Um, Mm. Firstly, it's about thinking about needs and assets hand in hand. So by um, overlaying a person-centered design approach with asset-based community development, we were able to not just look at what people need which is sort of that's person-centered design you know what needs do we need to meet um yeah but also looking at um what are the assets that we can activate and mobilize and leverage and amplify in this place um and instead of just asking what are people's challenges we were asking what are their strengths their hopes their dreams um this wasn't just about sort of solving wicked problems it was about developing sustainable communities that can continue to thrive once this program comes to an end once we step out of the picture um and um instead of just co-designing with people we were sort of supporting them to to, to co-produce and to self-organize which is sort of the the abcd approach as a based community Mm. development approach so really bring these two approaches hand in hand that differ in lots of different ways but at the end of the day they both aim to uncover the why behind the what and really understand root cause and not just symptoms to, to, to make change happen at a systemic level. So that's one key takeaway um, or learning. The other is um, really moving from health behaviour change 
as an intervention space to really holistic change across the social determinants. I think we're often guilty of thinking about health inequalities as just people not adopting the healthy behavior. You know, if people would just stop smoking or eat more fruits and vegetables, and often people have the best intentions in the world, but they can't get the job to be able to provide them with financial security to to look after their families, or they live in really poor quality housing, um, high pollution neighborhoods. Um, They might struggle with health literacy, so they can't really talk about the symptoms or the health issues they have in such a way that would um, enable them to access the best treatment or care. So I guess the the key takeaway from this program is to really think about um, health um, across all of these social determinants. So across all the things that we did on the program from data, so we didn't just look at health data, we looked at crime rates, um, we looked at um, betting shops, (laughs) um, we looked at um, educational outcomes. When we mapped assets, again, it wasn't just health assets, it was all assets. Um, When we engaged stakeholders, it wasn't just health services and public health teams within the local authority. The same with the vision. The vision didn't have to be about health. It had to be about genuinely what these people's dreams were these local communities dreams were and then similarly with the local action plans the action plans didn't have to fit into sort of you know like a health intervention a health specific intervention because we could understand the connection between all of these different things um so that's the second learning the third is um so from a single service focus to systemic collaboration so rather than thinking about health inequalities as something that needs a single service really thinking about all these different layers and the example i mentioned with um the self-defense classes um, for Bengali girls touches on all of these different layers. So how do you influence everything in the place from how policy is developed to really reduce uh, health inequalities as much as possible to how places are designed and how people interact within that place? Um, And then the final learning is, I guess, um, going back to outcomes-based commissioning in the beginning. So making sure that we measure what matters. So moving from measuring outputs and deliverables to measuring outcomes and and impact. Um, So yeah, I think these would be the four key takeaways for me. Joanna, you mentioned there about measuring uh, what's important. Um, you know, we know in big systems projects, it's 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 quite difficult to think about how you measure those outcomes over time, and indeed how you even baseline the change. How is it that you did that in this project? Yeah, so obviously it's really challenging to sort of talk about outcomes and then try and measure something as vague as that. And obviously on. On the program, we measured some of the usual things like um, or we collected data around some of the usual things like 800 people engaged in developing the local action plans or we worked with 12 neighborhoods, etc. But when it boiled down to outcomes, um, we wanted to be led by what the community desired for their neighborhoods. So the local community came up with I statements, so statements that start with I that describe the sort of future they want to see for their places. So things like um, I can see people of all ages using outdoor spaces in my area or I feel locally safe or um, I feel proud that I can send my kids to school um, or I feel proud that I can send my children on the school walk alone. Um, So we uh, use these um, statements as a baseline in terms of what people wanted to achieve. Um, And then gradually through the programme, we worked with 
uh, University of East London and as an evaluation partner and the, uh, the delivery partners locally to uh, come back and ask those who have experienced the programme um, how true these statements were becoming. Um, so that's it's, it's a very simple way of really being led by people um, in your in your evaluation. Um, but also it comes, I suppose, with its own set of challenges because people's um, dreams and desires for a place constantly change. Um, so the I statements were there. People also wanted to change their minds about what they wanted to see. And and I suppose, yes, it's challenging, but at the same time, it, um, demonstrating that we are continuing to iterate these I statements um, really shows that we're we're listening and we're continuing to unblock um, anything that's standing in the way of these communities from, uh, you know, doing what they wanted to do for, for their for their place and for their families. We're coming to the end of the show, Joanna, and I've personally learned so much, which is exciting, and I could talk to you for a lot longer. What is one of those wildly important goals over the next year related to your practice that you might share with others? Yeah, so um, I mentioned earlier that I, that I'm now much more interested in uh, fulfilling my purpose through movement building, and um, this really requires understanding issues at a systemic level. Um, so convening the right players, um, creating the right conditions for everyone um, with a stake or influence in the system um, to create or adopt their own interventions, whether that might be changing policy, rebelling. Uh, creating a new theory um, that can support others to adopt particular ways of working or to, to share learning. I feel like um, my new role at the RSA aligns perfectly with that ambition. Um, so becoming a movement builder um, for change. Um, and that's what I'm going to be sort of looking forward to. So uh, with the RSA, um, or as a platform uh, for ideas that inspire the world. We have 30,000 fellows around the world. Um, we work with a lot of partners and we have high ambitions for the change that we want to see. Um, the challenge for me now is um, how do we all across that movement, how do we all align against some of the same issues and understand and, and support one another uh, to make that, that change happen? And how do I, as director of design innovation, create the conditions that enable um, people to use design approaches and innovation approaches uh, to do some of that work? Joanna, thank you so much for coming on Moments of Change. I look forward to following your next step in your journey and hearing more about what you do at the RSA. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie, again for having me. So there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. And if you would like to be a part of the conversation or the community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack community and help shape future episodes, connect with other designers around the world and join the newsletter where you can win books and get updates. Subscribe to content on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and listen to any of our other podcasts such as Getting Started in Design and Bringing Design Closer with Jerry Scullion, Power of Ten with Andy Pillane, Decoding Culture with Dr. John Curran, Prod Pod with Adrian Tan, Ethnopod with Jay Husbrook, Moments of Change with myself, Melanie Raymond, and Talking Shop, our community podcast. <laughs>